Am I on? Can you hear me? Good to see you. Welcome to um, 2014. It's good to see the tribe has gathered for a new year. Uh, second service, are you awake? Okay, excellent. Um, we're starting a new teaching series today called Blessed. Say the word blessed. Blessed. It's good. Uh, we'll get into that in just a minute. I have a friend. Her name is Yvonne. She works at Corner Bakery. She hugs people. Anybody familiar with Yvonne? Yeah. Has anybody been hugged by Yvonne? There you go. See, it's working out. Um, so she's been working there a few years. We've gotten to really know her well, and uh, it's fun to go in there and, and, get, and get hugged by Yvonne. I will say, however, though, there are times I don't want that. There are times that it's like 2.30 in the afternoon here at the shop, and I really want a cookie and a Coke, but I don't want to get hugged, and so I don't, I, don't, I don't go. I just eat the communion bread and call it a day. But, um, <laughs> oh, how little you know. Um, no, but you go over there, and she gives everybody a hug. If you're not familiar, have lunch there today and uh, look for her. All you got to do is make eye contact, and her arms are going around you. She's going to welcome you uh, into the corner bakery in great fashion. And uh, it's fun to go in there and uh, see the tourists that are going home. They got their suitcases by the table. They're going to get the train to the airport, and uh, she's going to talk to them, and then they get up, and they get hugged by Yvonne, and then they take the train, then they get on the plane, they go back to, I don't know, Toronto, and um, they tell people that it really is true. The myth of Southern hospitality is real. Like, she is, with two arms, perpetuating the myth that we are friendly down here. Um, <laughs> but it's just her. But here's the thing, like... <laughs> We all know it's true. It's just a myth. The, uh, what was I saying? Oh, when I go there to Corner Bakery, Yvonne will always say three things to me. I mean, we talk about other things, but there are always three things that she will say to me. First of all, I will say, how are you doing? This is sort of this routine we have. How are you doing? And she says, I don't know if she said this to you or not, but she says, uh, I can't complain because I woke up this morning. Like, that's the first thing she always says to me. And it's the thing that, like, I'm, I'm saying in my head as she's saying it, like, I'm so, you know, I don't want to hear this again. But, you know, I smile. It's, you know, and she says, I woke up this morning, and I say, well, that's good. You know, that's good that you're, you woke up. And, um, well, then that's the first thing she always says to me. The second thing she always says to me, or really, she asks me about my family. She asks about my daughter, my son, my, my wife, my parents, how are they doing, and whatever. And then she'll kind of say something about how she saw one of them the other day, and this, that, and the other. That's the second thing she always says to me. The third thing she always says to me is that when I'm leaving, she will say these words, D, because my name is Derek, by the way, <laughs> she will say, D, you have a blessed day. You have a blessed day. Now, I don't know what that means, and I don't know if it's just because I'm a pastor and she thinks that's the language we use, like if the atheist comes in, she just says, hey, you have a day. <laughs> you just, you have a day. I don't know what she says. I don't know if it's situational or not, right? But she always says to me, you have a blessed day. And I always answer like, okay, I'll have a blessed day. Whatever that means, I'll have a blessed day. I don't know if you've ever been told that or not by her or somebody said that to you or bless you or something like that. I don't know uh, what you've been told. I always just sort of answer back like, okay, you too. Like, because that's what you do, right? Like, enjoy the movie, you too. Like, what does that mean? All right. So, um, but what does it mean to have a blessed day? What does it mean to even be blessed? Blessed. What does that mean to be Blessed. If you're a blessed person, what does that mean? What does that look like? Like, how do you know if you're blessed? Is there some rubric that you sort of hold up and say, da, 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 I'm blessed, because it says so right here. Because ours is a world, and this is where the problem comes in. 
ours is a world uh, where the blessed are those who have a lot, right? They have a lot of friends, they have a lot of money, they have a lot of stuff, they have a lot of education, they have a lot of influence, a lot of answers for things, they have a lot of wisdom, and so on. That makes total sense, doesn't it? Like, just let's just rephrase all of that with the word blessed. Like, you're blessed with a lot of friends, you're blessed with resources, you're blessed with stuff, you're blessed uh, with a great education, you're blessed with the influence that you have, like that's a blessing, like we would say that. You're blessed with the ability to give wisdom, and so on, and so on, right? The blessed are those who are rich in those things. So when we think of the term blessed, we think, oh, it means more than, it means more than. Like you've been blessed with the right parents, the right job, the right body, the right kids, the right neighborhood, and so on. So the degree to which someone has been blessed is all in how we interpret essentially the quantity and the quality of their lives. It's not unlike money. Rich versus poor is a sliding scale. Rich is somebody who has more than you, poor is somebody who has less than you. So it's never, it's never like a fixed point. It's just, I make X amount, but he makes more than me, therefore he's rich, I'm not. I make X amount, she doesn't, I'm rich, she's not. It just slides. You just sort of view anybody who has more than as someone who's more blessed than you. Blessed is a more than sort of thing, not a less than. So that's kind of how we see it in the world. That's just the world we live in. That's the way the kingdom of this earth works. But the question, again, goes back to, well, what does it mean to be blessed? And so, because this is a church building, and because I'm a pastor, and because I'm a Christian, and because the Bible is the thing that we talk about each and every week in the life of Jesus, we're just going to sort of look at what does Jesus say about those who are blessed? Like, how would Jesus define that? What does he say about, that's a blessed person, or that's a blessed person? Like, who's he talking about? When Jesus says, this type of person is blessed, what does that mean, and who is that person? So that's what we want to talk about today, and we're going to go through... This passage that you may or may not be familiar with, it's going to take eight Sundays, uh, so including today, you've got seven more, so you're, you're one-eighth there, okay? Uh, and there are these eight statements that Jesus makes about those who are blessed. It's called the blessed statements, or the beatitudes. Say the word beatitude. Good, you just spoke some Latin, sort of, it just means blessed, so we're back to the original word, I don't know why we call them beatitudes, but, because uh, we didn't translate it that way, it's just blessed. And so these are the blessed statements. Are you familiar with these? Uh, okay, so the first one goes like this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So we're going to say this together. Ready? Here we go. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Raise your hand if you wanted to say blessed. <laughs> I don't know why we say that. Blessed. That's sort of the southern Christian way of cursing. Like, get in the blessed car, get your blessed clothes on, get your, like, I just feel, as someone who grew up here and is born and raised here, it just feels sort of weird to say that. Like, it just sounds like my grandmother, like, you know, this blessed snow, this blessed weather, you know. So we're going to go with blessed, okay, blessed, all right? That's just a side note there. The first thing Jesus says about those who are blessed is he says, first, they are poor in spirit, and then secondly, they get the kingdom. They get it. Those who are poor in spirit, they get the kingdom of heaven equals blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You don't have to be a scholar to read that thing on the screen and think that's totally upside down. There's no kingdom, no nation, no empire with poverty as its core value. Welcome to our country. It's, po- it's, it's impoverished. We're awesome. Like, that's not how it works. Even if the majority of the nation or kingdom or empire is poor, it's not the core value. No, no uh, nation of people has at the heart of it this goal of poverty. So the words blessed and poor, they don't even sound right together. That doesn't sound right at all. Blessed are the poor. Even if you just stop there, blessed are the poor. That's how Luke records it in his version of this, just blessed are the poor. He just stops it right there. That sounds even worse. Blessed are the poor. Now there are three things in here that we want to explore together. The word blessed, the phrase poor in spirit, and the phrase kingdom of heaven. Say the phrase kingdom of heaven. Now, this is the thing that Matthew plays with the entire writing of his biography of Jesus. There are four biographies of Jesus in the Bible. We have one written by a man named John, one written by a man named Luke, another by a man named Mark, and then we have Matthew's. And in Matthew's gospel account of the life of Jesus, Jesus doesn't teach anything until the verse we just read together. The thing you see on the screen is his first teaching. That's it. This is the first thing Jesus teaches in Matthew's gospel, and it's chapter 5, verse 3, which means for a little more than four chapters, Jesus isn't saying anything. And so you have all these different stories that lead up to that. You have his birth, you have uh, some childhood things, and then sort of nothing happens. All of a sudden he's older, and then he gets baptized by his cousin John, and then he leaves his baptism, and Matthew has us follow him into the wilderness where he spends more than four weeks there. And he wrestles with his calling, his vocation, his mission, to be Messiah, to be Christ, to be Savior. Like, he wrestles with that. And he comes out of the wilderness, and the first thing that he says is not a teaching, it's just this announcement, and he says this that you see on the screen in chapter 4, verse 17. It says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is what? At hand. Now, this is the first thing Jesus really says here, in terms of, like, his mission. And it's all about this phrase, the kingdom of heaven. And that it is somehow present, that it's at hand. So when the first listeners heard Jesus say this, hey, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, they thought, no, it's not. The kingdom that is at hand is Rome. That's the kingdom that is at hand. That's the kingdom that bends our arms. That's the kingdom we know, right? That's the empire that is at hand, not whatever it is you're talking about, this kingdom of the heavens, this rule, this empire, this reign of the heavens. No, what's at hand is Rome. But when Jesus spoke about the kingdom of heaven, he was speaking about an entirely different kind of empire than the one that they were living in. See, the one that they knew, the one that they were used to, was the one with the swords, in the armies, and the overtaxation, and the slavery, and the oppression, and the segregation. The one where you lived in fear and in need most of the time. That was the kingdom that was at hand all the time. This, whatever this thing is about the heavens, that was not at hand. And so Jesus was essentially saying, well, there's that empire, yes. But there's this other empire, this other kingdom, this alternative reign and rule in the world, something Jesus called 
over and over and over again throughout really all four gospel writings, the kingdom of heaven. What did Jesus talk about the most? This, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's the empire of the heavens, the empire that God envisioned for his world. It is the way, it is a completely upside down from the way that they were used to living. And this is where we're going here in just a moment. And it's certainly upside down from the one that we're used to, the empire that we're used to living in. And when Jesus said things about the kingdom of heaven, there's this sense in which he was pointing at the current cultural narrative and saying, it's not supposed to be like this, but it's supposed to look like this. The kingdom of heaven is at hand and it is drastically different than the one you were used to. And the way into the kingdom, the way into God's empire, the way into the reign of the heavens, he says, is through the experience of repentance. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, don't be afraid. I know that this is what you typically see on a billboard, a sticker. It's on the t-shirt of someone you may or may not be friends with. This may be the thing that your pastor said growing up all the time. And and in framed in that way, it kind of sounds like God is, he's not quite done with us, but it's like one more chance. Are you with me? It's like a parent, like one more time and that's it, I'm, I'm cutting you off, right? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Like this is supposed to scare you. Is that how you've always interpreted this? Like repent, straighten up because I'm here. Like it's coming. I'm not throwing you out of the pool yet, but I'm one more, one more strike and you're out of the pool. I don't know why I'm using the pool as an illustration, but go with me on this. But we sometimes see this as like, okay, God's like really mad, but not done with us yet, but he's really close. And so we oftentimes interpret it as that, but the difficult thing is that the word repent doesn't mean that at all. Now we've dirtied this word up, we've made it a terrible, terrible word. The word is metanoia. Say the word metanoia. Yeah, it's this beautiful, profound word that simply means to change the way that you think about things. To change the way that your mind processes old truths about the way of life. Repentance does not mean stop doing what you're doing. It doesn't mean stop sinning. It doesn't mean you need to completely go the other direction. The Bible actually has a phrase for all that. It's stop sinning. (laughs) Right? It already has a phrase for that. The story of Jesus rescuing the woman caught in adultery. You know this story. And everybody is gone. I mean, he essentially saves her life. And he looks at her. He does not say, now repent. He says, don't do this anymore. Right? Don't do this anymore. Repent means to shift the way that you think about things, to change your mind. Repentance is not about bending your arm. It is about bending your mind. And it makes sense because Jesus was essentially saying that the kingdom of heaven is at hand and you're going to have to drastically change the way that you think because the empire of the heavens is not what you are used to. And since you are accustomed only to the kingdom that you know and live in, What I'm going to show you, what I'm going to teach you about the kingdom of the heavens will make no sense at all, at least not at first. Because the way things 
are done by God is very different than the way the empire does things. And to really get it, to really see it, and to really experience it, you're going to have to change the way you think because the kingdom of heaven is a mind-bending thing. It's totally upstream. It's countercultural. In fact, this statement forms at the beginning of Matthew almost a thesis of this is going to read the gospel of Matthew and to follow the life of Jesus is to participate in a countercultural behavior. It's going to be different. All that to simply say Jesus was pointing at the world around him and saying the way God wants to rule the world is not like anything in terms of how the empire wants to rule the world. His kingdom, the empire of the heavens, is other than what you think. And his first announcement about who gets the kingdom is this. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now it makes sense. Yeah, my mind's going to have to do some serious repenting because this makes no sense at all. If this is truly who gets the kingdom, and if this is truly who populates the kingdom, and if this is truly the kind of person and the kind of community that God wants in his kingdom, yeah, I'm going to need some schooling on this because that doesn't make any sense. So who are these people, the poor in spirit? Well, when Jesus said these words... You know, roughly 97% of the empire's resources went to support the top 3% of its people, placing most of the population at or below the poverty line. Now, just before he says these words, Jesus Jesus heals a lot of people. Right at the end of chapter 4, he's healing all these people. And in verse 23, Matthew writes for us that Jesus' fame grew throughout all of Syria. Well, of course it does. If you can heal people, you're going to have a crowd, right? Are you with me on that? If someone can heal you of your diseases, of your sicknesses, you're going to develop a following. And so all these people are now following Jesus. In fact, verses 1 and 2 of our text today talk about how Jesus sees the crowds and he ascends this mountain and he sits down and he turns around and sees all these people. And then he begins to teach them because he knows that they want something from him. They want to be blessed like him. He's blessed to heal people, like, give us some of that. Tell us more about where that comes from. And the first thing Jesus announces is, oh, the kingdom of heaven belongs not to the rich, but the poor in spirit. And for them, they get the word poor. They get the word for poverty. They understand that because 97% of them, 97% of the resources are going to support the top 2% or 3% of the empire. Again, placing most of these people at or below the poverty line. Being poor was not a new concept for those listening to Jesus, sort of this like, Duh, we know what that means. They were all well aware of what it was like to live in need on a daily basis. The poor were essentially those who were learning to live with loss. They lost everything. They lose everything. Again, they're living in an unjust culture where the poor are subjugated, where there's great oppression. It's very different from the culture we live in. I mean, we have some of this in our own nation, but very much unlike. I mean, it's, this is an incredible piece of history to dive into of how this empire actually expanded and what it meant for the people who lived underneath those reins. The poor lived with the losses of their dreams and their hopes. No chance of climbing a ladder into a new bracket 
you always had the same tax status, which was you're overtaxed. You live on next to nothing. And so the poor, Jesus said, they get the keys to the kingdom. (laughs) They get it. You win. You're poor, you win. But then he adds this part, in spirit. Say the word pneuma. It's the word for spirit. It's a very mysterious word. The word spirit is like, it's, it's hard to define. It's hard for us to know really what this means. But there are a couple things about it that are sure. One is that it refers to essentially the breath of life. If you're breathing, the thing that's coming out of your mouth is your spirit. Pneuma. When Jesus, it's one of the great resurrection stories in John where Jesus is hanging out with his disciples after the resurrection and they're just, you know, they're waxing, whatever, and then he blows in their face, John says. Just, he blows in their face. So odd. Do that next time you greet somebody. Like, you're talking about the game and you go, oh, hold on, you just blow in their face. That's essentially what he does. It's so random. And yet, it makes great sense because they're still struggling with, didn't you just die? I, I know, I know it sounds so whatever. It's this simple. Jesus just blows in their face, and they go, well, dead people don't do that. I mean, that's essentially what's happening here. And so the spirit, the pneuma, the breath of life is the thing that differentiates you between the living and the dead. And so there's this sort of kitchen sink, all skate term here for like, oh, it's just life. Because you are walking and thinking and breathing, there's a spirit of life in you, but it is also connected to the divine. It's the thing that God gives us. We're living people because God has chosen that. Now, there's a weakness to these people, Jesus says. They're poor in their spirit. There's something about their life, their breath of life. They're faint, weary, tired. It's paycheck to paycheck. It's miserable. Something or a series of somethings has robbed them of the richness of life. Can you relate? The phrase itself is pretty clear. There's been a loss of some sort. And the poor in spirit are living without. They are deficient in some way and something is missing and its value is such that because it's gone, their spirit is crushed. There's no chance of getting out of it. It's double-edged. It's this kind of, there's been a loss on the outside, whether it's economic or relational or just cultural, and it's becoming a loss on the inside. There are two poverties being talked about, outward and inward. And I think that we all know that one of those tends to lead to the other, yes? Right? Have you ever been through a loss that has done something bad for your spirit? For your faith? For your hope? I mean, it's true. Outside loss leads to inside loss. As much as we think that it doesn't, as much as we think that words don't hurt, As much as we think the lost job, we can bounce back. As much as we think about the broken relationship is no big deal. We can put all the no fear stickers on our car we want. Like, we all know that when something breaks on the outside, 
we break on the inside. And when we suffer on the outside, our spirit suffers as well. The death of someone we love, the loss of a job, the betrayal of a friend, the betrayal of a spouse, maybe abuse from someone that we trusted, failure at something we love, or failure with someone that we love. Maybe even failure with God. Like you just can't get out of this thing that you know you shouldn't be doing. Like it's been, it's a year after year after year struggle for you. And your spirit is crushed. There's a bankruptcy that we all experience when something happens to us. And it impacts what is in us. I know that we often pray, God just changed me on the inside. But sometimes that doesn't work. Because our outside is terrible. It's toxic. And it impacts us. It it affects us. And by the time that Jesus spoke these words, blessed are the poor in spirit, the word poor etymologically had reached a point in history where it simply meant that this person, if you describe them as poor, they essentially have nothing left but to hope for the mercy of the gods. Like, of course, it meant economic poverty, but it just had become this word to just describe anyone who's got nothing left except to hope for the mercy of the gods. And I get that. Like, when we're looking at this passage, the statement of Jesus that, you know, the poor in spirit are the ones who are blessed, it's easy to go there and think, oh, because we're enlightened, we have to make application. We say, oh, he's talking about the kind of person that needs God and knows it. Like, oh, that's the trick. So I need to become poor in spirit so that I get the kingdom. Like, we see this as like, okay, if the poor in spirit are blessed and the blessing is you get the kingdom, I got to figure out how to become poor in spirit, which is really sort of arrogant. I, I will pretend to be poor. I will become poor. I will, I will feign poverty so that I can get the kingdom and be blessed. Are you with me on that? But the thing about the poor in spirit is, and please hear me on this, there's nothing good about it. Don't hear what Jesus is saying as something that is a good thing. To be poor in spirit is to feel forgotten, left out, alone, to continue struggling with sin. To be poor in spirit is to be crushed and injured. It's not an attribute that we're supposed to run towards. It's a terrible state, and we've all been there. God's desire for all of us today is not that we leave the building and go, I want to go back to that place where I feel terrible about myself. Now again, we're Americans, we're in the church, this has to mean something in terms of next steps. And so we read this and go, okay, to get the blessing of the kingdom, whatever that is, to get the blessing, to get the keys to the kingdom, i got to be poor in spirit. So we've made it into a good thing. But this is not a good thing. It's not the thing that God wants for us. But it is a reality for us. We all get into that place time and again. So it's a continuing, looping reality for us. And perhaps you're there now. Perhaps you're going through something or something has happened to you where you feel like, oh yeah, my spirit is crushed. I'm carrying it with both hands. But the poor in spirit describes someone who, because 
of all that has happened in their lives, they actually feel as though God has overlooked them. And so part of what Jesus is saying here, and to whom he's saying this to, is that you're going to have to get that out of your mind. That the poor in spirit have not been overlooked. And that his blessing is on them. Here Jesus reminds us that when we are in that place, we're not alone. That God is not far away. I mean, this is quite a message in this room, year after year after year and week after week, that our status isn't cursed, but blessed. When we feel as though we've been overlooked by God because of whatever it is that's happened to us, and it's creating this inside feeling that there's a great spirit of poverty inside of our souls and hearts and minds and all of that, it's very simple to think, it's not a far jump to think, okay, God has moved on. I'm not in a blessed state. But here comes Jesus with the the whole upside-down empire of the heavens and going, no, 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 you get the kingdom. You get it. Here's the keys. Yours is the kingdom. Blessed are those who are so crushed in their spirit that they feel like God has moved on. He says, no, 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 here's the keys. You get it. The word blessed means that God is on your side. You are fortunate. It's a translation of the word blessed. You are fortunate because God is for you. He's with you. To be blessed, to be found in favor with God, also exists in the state's in which we are very poor in our spirit. To be blessed is to live at peace despite the circumstances that surround us because there's this posture of hope and it's rooted in the reassuring presence and faithfulness of God. Oh, we never did the Greek. Makarios. Say it. I mean, I put it on the slide. you got to say it. Makarios. If you have a version of the Bible that says happy, rip the page out, throw it away. It's a bad translation. No no offense, but I mean, it's terrible. It's not what that means. Poor in spirit aren't happy. What is that? They're terribly sad. But it's into their lives that Jesus says, God is with you. God is for you. Now, there are eight statements with the word blessed in this passage. The first and the last are in the present tense. And they also have the same ending. That yours, that theirs is the kingdom of heaven, is the kingdom of heaven. It's present tense. The rest, the middle six are all future. If you do this, you get this. If you do this, you get this. But these two, blessed are the poor in spirit. And interestingly enough, the eighth one is blessed are those who are persecuted theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is not something you do to get into God's reign of the universe. This is just the way it is. You are in it. These are the very two conditions, poor in spirit and persecuted, where we think God has moved on. I've been overlooked, but it's no, no, no. Jesus makes these present tense saying, yours is the kingdom of heaven. God is on your side. Now, the next six that we'll look at, they do have some next steps for us. Like, okay, yeah, we need to shoot for that. We need to become that. We need to become that kind of community, that kind of individual. But these two, it's just, these are essentially announcements. This is an announcement. 
Core in spirit is not a spiritual growth plan. Don't leave here and go, I got to become more in spirit. I can look that up. How do you do that? Three steps. Fail, fail, and fail. Like, that's how you do it. Be terrible at spiritual growth. It's not a spiritual growth plan. It is an announcement about the way things are and about how God views us. Blessed are the poor in spirit is an announcement that God is on your side precisely because that's what the poor in spirit need to hear. Right? That's what you need to hear. It's what I need to hear. No matter what our spiritual condition is, healthy or not, we're all invited to embrace the promise that God's blessing is on those who are fully aware of their need of his saving grace and mercy in their lives. And nobody more so than those who are injured in their spirit. Dallas Willard wrote, The poor in spirit are called blessed by Jesus, not because they are in meritorious condition, but because precisely in spite of and in the midst of their ever so deplorable condition, come on now, the rule of the heavens, I love that phrase, has moved redemptively upon and through them by the grace of Christ. I know you're thinking it's January 5th, don't hit me with that heavy stuff yet, okay? But just look at it. The rule of the heavens has moved redemptively. That's not even a real word. It's just so awesome. Redemptively upon and through them by the grace of Christ. How is the kingdom of heaven theirs? Well, part of it is just in knowing that God's kingdom, the empire of the heavens, is best entered through the gates of humility. Philip Yancey said, imperfection is the prerequisite to grace, period. Or as we say around here often enough, that resurrection begins with death, not life. Resurrection comes to us. We embrace new creation when we recognize that that's what we need. And there is this, if there is a step, if there is this kind of step that we take It's when we are poor in spirit. We don't take steps to get there. Again, it's a terrible place to be. But when we're there, if there's a step, it's this recognition that grace comes to imperfection. That's why it's there. Resurrection comes to death, not the things that are living. And so if there's a step, I know this is heavy, but if there's a step through or out of the poor in spirit state, It's to just remember that you're blessed, that God is with you, that God is on your side. And so I think I've said enough to those of you who feel as though you're in that spot. But as a congregation, let me close with this. Our job, our job as a church, when we scatter from this place, because this is nothing, this is an hour long, this is a huddle, you know, we're not changing the world in here. But when we leave this place, our ears must be tuned to the voices of those in our lives. And do you hear the pain of those who are poor in spirit? Do you hear it? Can you ask God, tune my ears to that? Open the eyes of my heart so that I can see you, the scriptures say. So that I can see who you love, that I can see what you care about. Like, 
in the buildings that you live in, the neighborhoods you live in, the places you work, the schools you teach in, et cetera, like whatever it is that you do and I do during the day, although I live in this building, thank you very much, but because uh, I'm the vicar of North Buckhead, but <laughs> come by and see me. Um, but when we leave, our ears must be tuned to hear the cries of those who are impoverished in spirit and to say to them, you're blessed. Yours is the kingdom. Not of this world, because it's, it's terrible. But there's a whole alternative empire, and it's filled with people like you and me. And God isn't far off. He's close. Amen? Let's take communion together as we begin the year. I say that like we don't do that every week, but we do take communion every week. Um, but as we begin the year, moving through these statements about what it means to be blessed, particularly today, I pray that as you take the bread and the juice, that you're reminded of uh, the thing that, that God did. He sent his son here, he lived, he died, he rose again, all because he loved you and uh, in me. And so I'll pray, and then you can make your way to one of the four tables and take the bread and the juice. Uh, and when you come back to your seat, Jeff's going to lead us in a great classic hymn about how great God is and we'll sing that together uh, and then we'll be dismissed for the week let's pray God thank you for this day and thank you for the announcement that if our spirits are crushed that we are blessed and that doesn't make any sense no matter how hard we work on it how how long we spend writing a talk or just waxing over the scriptures and looking for all the different references. I mean, it's just totally upside down. And we may not get it ever, but we do thank you that whatever it means uh, in its entirety, we at least know that you're with us. And that when we feel like you're not, and that when we feel like you have every reason to overlook us and move on because of whatever has happened to us, whether we're ashamed or injured, or both. God, remind us through the words of your son, the first teaching that Matthew gives us of Jesus is that you're on our side. And that if we're poor in spirit, we get the keys to your kingdom. So God, as we take the bread and the juice just now, let it retell the story of your love to us as we eat the bread and remember your life, your death, for us. As we drink the juice, we picture the blood that was shed on the cross, but we are also reminded that you rose from the dead. That's why we're here today. And we pray for your coming. We pray that you come soon, that you rebuild our lives, that you rebuild this world, and that all things are made new. But until then, we walk day by day in faith and we live in this blessing. And it's in your name that we pray and everyone said, amen.
stand as we sing this last verse together. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, all thy works shall praise thy name. 